Hey, can we celebrate new life in Christ? By God's grace, 49 new believers baptized into their faith in the month of September. So way to go, church. God is using you to connect people to Jesus. That is our mission as a church. We want to connect people to Jesus, his life-changing power, and then we disciple those people to know the power of a transformed life and this internal hope we carry with us that no matter what happens, uh, we have a God who lives in us and gives us an internal peace, an internal joy. He gives us a family of believers around us who walk with us through the hard times. Well, I wanna take a quick survey and ask if there's anyone else like me, any other weirdos who when you go through the drive-through, you get your food and it should be that time that you just pull away, but instead you have to take a quick inventory. You have to document, anyone else like me? Yeah, I, I know you. I'm like you because I'm, uh, this is how it'll be. Mel's next to me. The kids are behind me. We get our food. A bunch of people are waiting behind us, but it's like, wait, let's do an inventory. Does everyone have the right amount of chicken nuggets? Do we have the right number of sandwiches, the right salads, everything else? Why do I do that? Why are us control freaks like that? It's because we've been burned in the past, right? We've been burned, our trust has been broken. We've pulled away from the drive-through, we've gotten halfway home or all the way home. We open up the bag and we realize, you know what? Not everything was in here and so we have to validate it. To validate it and that's what skeptics do. I think if we're honest, we've all got a little bit of skeptic in us. I've got a lot of bit of skeptic in me. In fact, for five years, that was my job. I was a professional, full-time, skeptic. Uh, they call it an investigative reporter, but that was my job, was to go around as a skeptic and look at industries and see where is there corruption, where are things not going right. Here's one of the stories I did during that time about medical doctors in the state of Arizona, and I'd always find these little loopholes and way people were getting away with stuff. I used to have this motto in the newsroom. I said, if there's enough money and there's enough power, there is corruption. It's just a matter of finding it. Right, I'm a skeptic at heart, that's the way I am. And there was a time in my life when that's how I felt about Jesus and God and church and the Bible. I felt like maybe it was all made up. I felt like it, you know, those claims of Jesus, peace, joy, love, great, it all sounds fantastic, but it's too good to be true. In fact, I remember a time in my life when I thought, maybe this Jesus guy was made up. I mean, what if this was all just totally fabricated? But then I started to look into the evidence for myself. And I wanna tell you today a little bit about my journey as a skeptic. And I also wanna talk about the skeptics in your life. Now, in your life, the skeptic may be yourself. The skeptic in your life may be the voice in your head, or maybe you're a strong believer and the skeptic in your life is someone you care about and they just can't really believe that this Jesus stuff is real and works. Here's the question that we're asking today. Who's the skeptic in your life? And then how can you help that person meet Jesus, whether it's you or someone else? I remember the tension I had in my life when I was skeptical about Jesus of thinking, man, I would love it if all that was true. I would love it if all that stuff works, but I just don't know how it could actually be true. I think most of the skeptics in our lives or in our own selves we want this stuff about Jesus to be true. It'd be great if someone could forgive all our sin, could make us free from shame and guilt, could give us eternal life. It'd be great, but how do we actually know if it's true? Well, in my life as an investigative reporter, as I started to look at the evidence, I was amazed 
to see that whether Jesus lived or not is, is really very well documented. It's so clear that he lived. It doesn't take faith to believe that he lives. And I've got a book that comes out in about 10 days called Jesus Skeptic. And in this book, I've got a whole section where I show the ancient documents and even ancient artifacts, coins and other artifacts from people who wrote about Jesus. I document in there 15 ancient writers who all wrote about Jesus, but were not Christians. In other words, they believed Jesus lived, but they didn't believe that he was God. And as ancient writers, they document that he lived. So turns out, if you look in the evidence, it doesn't take faith to believe Jesus lived, but it does take faith to believe that he's God. It does take faith to believe that he can change your life. So whether you're the skeptic or there's someone you love who's a skeptic, how do you help them see that this Jesus who lived is in fact the creator of the universe and has the power to change our lives? Well, to answer that question, I wanna tell you a true story that's recorded in the word of God. It's about a young skeptic whose name was Saul. And Saul had either seen Jesus with his own eyes or he knew people who had. You see, he lived at the time of Jesus, but he didn't believe that Jesus was God. So he was a skeptic in the sense that he said, yeah, that guy existed, he's a person, but he's just a person. In fact, Saul wasn't just a casual skeptic or kind of a doubter. Saul was angry that Jesus would claim to be God. And Saul was part of a movement that was trying to stop the early church. But the early church, these people who had seen Jesus raised from the dead, at least that's what they all said, they were kind of unstoppable. They were fanatics. They were kind of weirdos. Like even if you threatened to kill them, they'd keep saying Jesus rose from the dead. And this made Saul even angrier. We pick up this story in the book of Acts chapter seven. And it says this, the, the Jewish leaders, and Saul was one of those, and this doesn't just mean ethnic Jewish, this was a religious group that Saul was part of. They were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. Who's Stephen? Well, if you read Acts six and seven, you'll see that Stephen was an early Christian and Stephen has just finished a long and very fiery sermon. Right there in the temple, right in the middle of the Jewish religious group, he has said, Jesus, who you all crucified, was the Messiah. He was God among us. He's the person your prophets predicted and you've all been waiting for. And guess what? You guys crucified him and he made them so angry. At the end of his sermon, they're infuriated. They shake their fists at him in rage. And then it continues, they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting. They rushed at Stephen, this young Christian, and they drag him out of the city. And then they began this ritual that was common in ancient Near Eastern cultures. In fact, this still sometimes happens in parts of Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq, where a mob will encircle a person and that person standing in the middle, they'll pick up stones and they'll start to throw stones at the person. This is happening to Stephen, this Christian surrounded by anti-Christian skeptics. And the next verse says this, these accusers of Stephen, as they're working up a sweat, throwing these stones at him, they all take their coats off and they lay them at the feet of their kind of thought leader, their sort of alpha leader, who is this young man named Saul, who's not just kind of a skeptic about Jesus, he's an anti-Jesus activists. 
Well, as the mob stoned Stephen, you can almost picture it in your mind on that desert landscape with Stephen standing in the middle, this mob encircling him, and it starts with little rocks, but it's one after another pelting him from this whole group. And you can almost see Stephen kind of twitching and flinching as different rocks hit different parts of his body. And finally, one hits him in the head and he kind of falls to his knees. And as he does, he says, Lord Jesus receive my spirit. In other words, I know I'm going to die, but I'm going to have eternal life with you. And then Stephen, this is just months after Jesus was crucified. And you might recall that when Jesus was there on the cross, he prayed to God the Father and he said of the people who were crucifying him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, in the very same spirit, says, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Can you imagine a mob of people throwing rocks at you to kill you and you're hit and you realize I'm gonna die and you say, God, please forgive them for what they're doing. This is the heart of Christ in Stephen. Well, Saul is standing there as one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. The story continues. It says a great wave of persecution began that day sweeping over the church. The church, as you probably know, is not a building. We have a building that we meet in, and sometimes people call that the church, but you are the church. We are the church. The church is the people. At this time, the church didn't even have a building. And all of a sudden, after this mob kills Stephen, this anger starts to erupt. And all these anti-Christian people in the city, they start to attack the Christians in their homes and all around the city. And the Christians scatter throughout the surrounding regions trying to run for their lives. Well, some of the devout Christians came and they buried Stephen's body with great mourning. But Saul, this skeptic, he was going everywhere to destroy the church, an anti-Jesus Skeptic. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women so he could throw them into prison. The story picks up in chapter 9. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he goes to the high priest. And he requests letters. You see, the Jewish religious leaders, they had these synagogues all around. And he said, I want to get letters for the different leaders of the synagogues so all of us can work together to identify the Christians, to arrest them, and ultimately to imprison them. He wanted to arrest any followers of the way. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Jerusalem, where Jesus had recently been crucified. In other words, before this movement of all these crazy people who say Jesus rose from the dead, before this thing spreads too far and gets out of hand, let's arrest them all, let's bring them all together, and let's squash this thing. So Saul the skeptic is literally on his way approaching Damascus. He's got these letters in hand to go to the synagogue leaders so they can work together to arrest the Christians when a bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. Now, if you're a skeptic like me and you're like, oh, great, here's a miracle. It probably didn't happen. Here's what you should know. Uh, Saul is a historically documented person, and he's the one who says this happened. He's the one who was known to be persecuting and hating Christians who says this bright light shined down. And as this light is shining down, Saul falls to the ground. I mean, this is like as bright as the sun. It's blinding him. And he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? And you can imagine Saul there. Now he's the one kneeling like Stephen was and his eyes are blinded by this brightness and he hears this thundering voice in his ears and he says, who are you, Lord? And with everything he believes, he's expecting the God to say, "Uh, I'm on your side. Jesus is evil. Go kill the Christians. And instead, the Lord says, I'm the one you're persecuting. I am Jesus. I am God. Now get up and go to the city where you were planning to arrest the Christians and instead go to the Christians and tell them that you now believe. Well, the men with Saul stood speechless because they had heard the sound, but they hadn't seen the light that Saul had seen. Saul picked himself up off the ground and when he opened his eyes, he was blind. His encounter with Jesus was so powerful, it blinded him. Well, later, Saul is going to go to the Christians. He's going to be led there as a now blind man. And he's going to say, Christian leader, I'm here. I'm the one who was here to arrest you. But Jesus showed up to me and now I'm blind, but I believe. And uh, come with me. I really want to help you now. And understandably, the Christian leaders are now a little skeptical themselves, right? Like, is Saul playing a trick on us? And so God actually speaks to one of these Christian leaders and he says this, go for Saul is my chosen instrument. You see, even when Saul was a skeptic, even when Saul had his back turned to Jesus and outright hated Jesus, Jesus not only loved him, Jesus had a plan for him. In fact, if you look at verse 20 of Acts chapter nine, you'll see Saul after the, uh, God heals him from the blindness He shows up at the very synagogue where the leaders are expecting him to rally them to arrest the Christians, and he shows up, and what does he say? Turns out Jesus is the Son of God after all. Jesus is the Messiah. And this skeptic who hated God is transformed after his encounter with Jesus to the extent that if you look at the Christian Bible, You'll now see about two-thirds of the New Testament are books that were written by Saul the skeptic who would become Paul the apostle after he changed his name. And so how do we answer this question about the skeptics in our lives? Here's a simple truth from this story about Saul. Jesus invites skeptics into his movement. So if you're here and you're a skeptic or you know a skeptic, you need to know you are welcome here every weekend. I was once just as skeptical as you are. Whether it's that you're turned off by Christians who are into politics or Christians who are hypocrites or you're an intellectual skeptic or you're an emotional skeptic because you've been hurt by people, whatever kind of skepticism you've had, I've probably been there. And I'm so glad that there was a church where I could show up curious and even skeptical and over time learn about Jesus. Skeptics are invited into Jesus' movement. Jesus loves you even if you don't believe in him. Even if you don't think he existed, he loves you and he's pursuing you. There is a God who made you. And when you lay your head on the pillow at night, you kind of know that, don't you? Someone is out there. Something made you. There's something that your heart longs to connect with in the universe. That's your creator. And he embodied himself in a human body. He gave himself the name Jesus so that he could reach out to you. Know that no matter how skeptical you are, you're invited here into this church and Jesus invites you. Be an honest skeptic. You know what I often say from my background as an investigative reporter is that a true skeptic 
isn't someone who refuses to believe anything. A true skeptic is someone who refuses to believe what's false, and they insist on finding the truth. That was my, my rally call as a journalist, is what is the truth? And in my own life, as I looked into what is the truth about Jesus, it was layer after layer of realizing, wow, he actually lived. Wow, we actually know his words. Wow, his words are very profound. And it reached a point finally where I said, I have to step out and try this. If he says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest, I'm not going to know if that's true or not until I try it. So if you're a skeptic, don't give up on the Jesus who won't give up on you. He invites you into his movement. I would guess most of you here are believers. I know many of you. And so what about the skeptics in our lives? What about the people who we love? And of course, most skeptics today aren't out killing Christians like Saul was, though that does happen in the Middle East sometimes. And in fact, there's lots of stories from countries like Afghanistan and Iraq where Jesus does sometimes still miraculously appear to anti-Christian skeptics who are out there attacking Christians. But most of the skeptics in our lives are not trying to kill us. They just don't believe what we believe. How can we help them have an encounter with Jesus? Well, let me give you from Saul's story three ingredients that transformed the skeptic Saul into the apostle Paul. Three things that really you can take with you. And as there's someone who maybe lives in your home or in your workplace or in your neighborhood, and you want that person to experience the power of Jesus, but they're just not there, these are the three ingredients that will get them there. And before I say what they are, I want to show you a picture of how this works, a picture of new life. This is a, a seedling tree, a seedling that's just sprouting up. Someday it's going to become a big, giant tree, but it starts with this little seed. How does new life come about? How does a seedling come about? Well, it's got to have three ingredients, right? You've got to have sunlight, and you've got to have the seed, and then you've got to have water. And if you don't have any one of those three ingredients, you're not going to have a seedling. But if you've got the seed, and if you've got water, and if you've got sunlight, there's a very good chance you're going to have a seedling. You're going to have new life. So what were these three ingredients for Saul? I'll show them to you in just a minute. Saul heard God's word. In other words, you might recall the context that when everyone was murdering Stephen, Stephen had just preached a sermon. So by the way, when you tell people about Jesus and they don't respond right away, know that you've planted a seed. In fact, most of the time when people hear about Jesus, it's very rare that the first time they fall on their knees and say, oh, I need God. <laughs> most of us, it took a number of times hearing it. So if you invite someone to a church service, Maybe they even come to the service or you give them a Christian book or, or you share with them a message that they can watch online and they don't immediately change. That's not a failure. That means you've planted the seed. Keep planting the seeds. Second, after Saul heard God's word, he saw changed lives, right? As he's dragging Christian men and women who are screaming out of their homes, he's seeing changed lives. He saw it with Stephen, right? What kind of person is surrounded by a mob getting killed and says, God, forgive them. God, don't hold this against them. I know you love them and died on the cross for them and I love them too. Saul saw a changed life. And third, Saul had that dramatic encounter that we heard about where Jesus, boom, bright, blinding light. Now here's the thing. For the skeptics in our lives, we're often hoping and waiting for this but the first two ingredients preceded the blinding light, didn't they? 
In fact, I was thinking about this this week as I studied this passage. I'd never really realized this before. You know, Jesus could have appeared in that blinding light to uh, some person in Siberia or Southern Africa who had never even heard that Jesus existed, and he could have had that dramatic encounter, right? But he appeared to someone who had heard the word of God and someone who had seen changed lives. And I think a lot of times when we have skeptics in my life, I know this was the case for my parents as they were praying for me. They were, they were wanting to change me, but they really couldn't. They could pray that this would happen, but here's what they could do. They could make sure I was hearing the word of God and they could make sure they were watering that seed of the word with showing me the change in their life. I remember as I went into my journalism career and I was seeing all kinds of human life from millionaires and even billionaires, NFL athletes, professional sports team owners, all the way down to heroin addicts, immigrants stumbling across the border from Mexico into Arizona, saw the whole spectrum of humanity. And it was over the course of time that I realized, wow, my parents, who I thought were so boring with their dull Midwest lifestyle, they really have something that all these other people are looking for. I mean, they actually love each other in their marriage. They actually, you know, they have the inner peace and purpose, even driving 20-year-old rusted cars that a lot of these other people I'm interviewing and observing don't have. And, and it took time, but I saw the changing power of Jesus in their lives. And I saw it in my friends and in other people. And you know what? These three things continue to be true. They're true for the person that you're praying for, but they're also true for me and you after we believe. If you're anything like me, if you think of your heart like a garden, there are patches of it that are, are skeptical and dry. There is for me. There's always areas of my heart where there's still doubt. There's still skepticism. How do you overcome those areas within yourself? It's these same three things. You encounter the word of God, so keep being here on weekends, keep watching our messages online, keep reading the word for yourself. You surround yourself with people whose lives are changing. You get in a small group or another ministry out at our food fair today, and you see, wow, God's changing that person, he's changing those people, he can keep changing me. And then you pray, God, will you shine your light on the patches in my heart that are still doubtful? I think most Christians are still skeptics of Jesus in some area. They don't believe Jesus could actually change something or heal something in their life. And you can apply these same three ingredients to your own heart. I need the word of God for that area. I need people who love Jesus and are transformed around me for that area. And I need to pray, God, will you just shine your light in that area? So we can pray these and do these for ourselves. And we can also do these three things for the people around us in our life. In fact, if you have a skeptic on your heart today, I wonder which of these three could you start doing regularly? Or would you commit to do all three if you want to write all three of them down? Saying, you know, uh, how can I get them exposed to the word of God? Are there books I can give them? Can I just have Christian music playing when I'm around them? Can I invite them to church? There's simple ways. We're not going to jam it down their throat. We're not going to shout it at them, but I can just make sure if they're around me, they're hearing the word of God. Can I make sure that they're seeing changes in my life? Sometimes I think for parents who've been believers for a while, sometimes you have to inform your kids, you know what, there was a time when I was an alcoholic. 
You haven't known me as that, but I was that way. God has transformed me. And be honest with your kids about, you know what? Here's an area where God's still transforming me. You've seen me lose my temper. Believe it or not, I used to lose it a lot more. But Jesus is helping me and he's changing me. Let the people around you see. Tell them the stories of other believers you know whose lives are transforming. And then be praying. Because only Jesus could have opened Saul's eyes by blinding him. Only Jesus could have appeared to Saul in such a dramatic way. And so we do our part. We plant the seeds. We water the seeds. Maybe that's your step today. And then we pray, God, will you shine your light so that those seeds become new life. You could put it this way. I can't make anyone believe. When I was a skeptic, my parents couldn't make me believe. The skeptic in your life, you can't make them believe. But what you can do is you can plant the word of God from from it being written on your wall to playing on your speakers to coming out of your mouth and you can show a changed life and you can tell stories of a changed life and then you can pray that in time Jesus will shine his light. I want you to contrast two scenarios here. I want you to picture in your mind some rich, dark soil that's saturated with water and it's got that little seed planted there and then the sun shines down and over time that little seed grows up. I want you to contrast that with some very dry dirt and there is no seed under there and there's no water and the exact same sun shines but there's no life. I think sometimes we're just waiting for God to shine down and have this moment with a person, but God's waiting for us to plant the seed and water the seed so that when he does, new life results. Well, looking back on my life, this is really what my parents did for me. When I was skeptical, they kept showing me their changed lives and they kept exposing me to the word of God And they kept praying that one day God would open my eyes. And in my case, everyone's is different, but the way God opened my eyes was actually through an intellectual pursuit. Actually, it was this book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, written by a guy who was a skeptic, like I was, and he looked at the evidence. And it was through that book that I realized, wow, Jesus definitely did live. Whether I believe there's a God or not, it's clear that he lived. And then from that book, I saw, oh, here's where the Bible comes from. This is a historically valid document. And it was those two intellectual steps that led me to say, well, then I should read the words of Jesus and consider, could they possibly be true? And as I read the words of Jesus because of this book, those words started to speak to me and transform me. This is something that has so changed my life that I've spent a number of years praying about, God, how do I help other people experience this? Uh, And that's why I've written this book, Jesus Skeptic, that comes out in about 10 days. And really, my heart in this Jesus Skeptic book is that the moment I had where God opened my eyes, that that same moment would happen for lots of other people. For young people who are growing up in Christian families and are wondering, is this all actually true? As well as for people in my millennial generation, people of all ages. Uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict is still an amazing resource. It's kind of like an encyclopedia And if you're super nerdy and a researcher like me, uh, you'll love evidence that demands a verdict. What I've tried to do in Jesus Skeptic is speak this truth to a new generation that has a different set of values and assumptions. 
and um, a generation that's really much more visual, right? Most people now spend a lot more time on Instagram or watching videos than reading books. Uh, and so Jesus Skeptic is kind of unique because I gathered hundreds of images. So like when I talk about Jesus living and the ancient writers who wrote about Jesus, I show the coins of those ancient emperors who wrote about Jesus. And there's hundreds of images in the book. And it's a little different because one of the things I've realized about my generation and younger Americans is that we want to make the world a better place. Even those who are skeptical about Jesus, that's one of the great things happening right now is almost everyone wants to make the world a better place. That's such a great thing. And so Jesus Skeptic is really written for a generation that wants to make the world a better place. And what I did in Jesus Skeptic is I gather these images and artifacts to show that Jesus existed and then to show what his followers have done throughout history. Now, if you're skeptical, this might sound unbelievable, uh, and it was to me at first, but as I started to look at the evidence of what have Jesus, what has his impact been in 2,000 years? I learned, first of all, he's clearly the most influential person in history because one out of three people in the world today claims to be a Christian. That's according to the Pew Research Center, completely third-party, non-religious uh, sociology group says one out of three people today is a Christian. So Jesus is the most famous person in world history. And that motivated me to keep looking into his words. What was his life? What did he do? And as I tried to document what did his followers do throughout history, I was amazed. I looked at the major social advances, things that have changed our world, like the founding of the university, which created the scientific revolution, modern medicine, the founding of modern hospitals, even the end of open slavery, which slavery tragically was a global norm for thousands of years. Any major world empire from history, from the Aztecs to the Egyptians to the Romans, they had slaves. So the slavery that happened in North America, which was horrific and evil, was really not that rare in human history. It was very normal. What was rare is that a group of people got together and said, let's end this. And when I looked into the people who ended slavery, I was amazed to find they're quoting the Bible over and over and over again. Why are they doing that? They're essentially saying, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to end slavery. So for a generation that wants to make the world a better place, I've tried to explain my journey in a way that shows Christianity, perhaps in ways they've never heard before. But from my investigative reporter background, it's all done from evidence. It's not, well, this pastor says so, or this professor says so. In my news investigations, I always insisted on what I call primary evidence. Uh, here's what primary evidence is. I once did a story on an immigrant from Mexico who was beaten to death in a jail in Maricopa County, Arizona. And you get, of course, the sheriff's office saying, oh, we didn't beat him to death. And then you get the guy's family who's suing saying, yes, he was beaten to death. How do you figure it out? Well, you figure it out through the autopsy. You figure it out through the jail records. You get an attorney to subpoena the jail and get the video footage of what happened to him, and you get the primary evidence. That's the way I work as a skeptic and as a journalist. Let me show you just a little bit of the primary evidence. Uh, there's hundreds of these in the book. So I'm just going to show you two. I'm restraining myself, okay? <laughs> this is the Declaration of the Anti-Slavery Convention. This was in the early 1800s. These are the Americans who said, we are going to band together and we will risk our lives to end slavery. No matter what it takes, we're going to end slavery and the continent that we live in. 
And as they gathered together, what was it that bound them together? Well, I was amazed. And this is a primary evidence document. You can look this up for yourself. And I've highlighted here the scriptures just in this one portion. Everything that's highlighted here, and this is all in the book, is scripture. The whole argument of the anti-slavery society, the abolitionists who ended slavery in the United States, their whole argument was based on the Bible. I'd never been taught that. It's amazing to me. Uh, here's another piece of evidence from the similar group. As the anti-slavery society went out, they started to form activist chapters in cities all across the United States. And they started having pastors, most of them were pastors actually, and they would preach from their pulpits about the evil of slavery. And they would print these books and these letters that were distributed all around the country. And it took about 40 years of this to create a social revolt to where the majority of Americans rejected slavery. And that's when the Civil War broke out about 40 years after all this work had begun. Well, here's the Liberator. This is one of the newspapers that they would spread around saying, here's why we have to end slavery. And I wanna show you first on the Liberator that Jesus is right here in the middle, standing next to a cross. You've got an African-American slave and a white colonialist kneeling at the same level. And I wanna show you the scripture just within this logo. Here's the scripture. Along the bottom, there's a ribbon that says, love thy neighbor as thyself. That's a quote from Jesus. Around this coin is another quote. It says, I've come to break the bonds of the oppressed and to set the captives free. That's also a quote from Jesus. Uh, so what's unique about this book is instead of just saying, well, this expert says or that expert says, we show all this evidence so that sincere skeptics, you know, I believe Saul was a sincere skeptic. He was trying to do what was right. I was a sincere skeptic. I didn't, I thought it had all been made up, but I, I wasn't like hateful toward God. I just wanted to know the truth. And so this book is designed to help people who want to know the truth, see the truth for themselves. Well, you might be thinking, John, this is all great, but the skeptic in my life is so disinterested in Jesus. They're so disinterested in anything that has to do with God or the church. If I give them some book or invite them to a service, they want nothing to do with it. And if that's where you are, I wanna encourage you, I was once there too. But what my parents didn't know is when they would give me the book later on when they weren't looking, I would crack it open and take a peek. Mostly to try to prove it wrong. But the truth got to me eventually. The truth set me free. My parents kept praying. They kept exposing me to God's word and they kept showing me their changed lives. So what can you do if the skeptic in your life seems painfully uninterested? Here's one more observation from Saul. The skeptic Saul had to be painfully blinded before he could see. So if you've got a skeptic in your life and they're in this stage, it's normal. I was in this stage, Saul went through this stage, it's normal. It means the seed is in the soil, you just gotta keep watering it, keep planting seed, and wait for the sun to shine down. It's not uncommon for the skeptic to be painfully blinded. Well, let me close with a true story of a skeptic, a little boy named John, it's not me. This little boy was born in London, England on August 4th of 1725. This little boy, John, his dad was a hardened sailor who owned a slaving ship. His dad was often gone for months at a time and while his dad was a pagan slave trader, his mom was actually a loving Christian mother. 
She cared deeply for her son. She loved her son, but she was chronically ill. She was physically weak. And so as John grew up, just a rambunctious young boy, he kind of had the run of the house. He was always getting in trouble. At the age of 11, John followed in his father's footsteps and he became the cabin boy on a slave trading ship. Here's a artist's rendering of one of those ships. And as a teenager, he began drinking and living the life of an ill-tempered sailor. He was often getting in bar fights whenever they would stop at a port. He's usually found in the jail in a city port or in the ship's brig. Later, as an adult, he would describe himself as, quote, a godless monster. His difficulty with the law eventually drove him away from Europe And he discovered in West Africa a group of other wild and depraved men like him. Together, those men were responsible for untold death and suffering. John and his shipmates, they would seek out African tribal chiefs and they'd bribe them with guns and with spices and with liquor and they would buy young men and women as slaves, as many as 600 at a time. In fact, They were so inhumane and cruel and just outright evil that when some of these slaves would die in transport, John would often say, so be it. Essentially, it's the cost of doing business. This was just an evil person with his heart turned away from God. When the slaves who did survive were sold, John and his shipmates would split the money and he'd often go find another bar where he could get drunk. Well, in 1758, John was at sea And he was reading a book that his mom had given him called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas A. Kempis. And somehow through his calloused skin and his calloused heart and his blinded eyes, he started to get a little bit interested in this book. So interested, in fact, that he didn't see an approaching storm coming. And as this storm overtook the ship, he started to realize as someone who'd been at sea since the age of 11, we're going to die. There's no way we're going to make it out of this storm. He thought in that crisis about the only person as he looked back on his life who had really unconditionally loved him, his mom. And as the ship is tossing back and forth, he's holding on to a rope in that swaying ship and John falls to his knees and he promises, he makes God a promise, if you let me survive this storm, I promise to become a moral person. I promise to stop doing these evil things. Miraculously, the ship was battered, but they survived the storm. John, when they reached that port and all his buddies went to the first tavern to get drunk, he actually took the Bible that his mom had given him that he'd never read, and he started reading the Bible. And it took some time, but God started to transform John to the point that one day he showed up back in England and he said, I'm done with the slave trading business. It was all he had known. I'm done with it. And he, in God's plan, intersected paths with a guy named Charles Wesley. And Charles Wesley started to teach this former drunkard and slave trader. And eventually John became a preacher. In fact, he pastored a church in Olney, England. You can go visit that church building today. One Sunday morning, he was preaching a sermon on the grace of Jesus. That is Jesus' ability to reach even those of us who haven't cared about him. And as he preached that sermon, he finally told his congregation about his past sins in his life. And he shared with them some words that he had written about his life, a little song. 
The first verse of the song went like this. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. Most of us haven't heard that verse, but that's actually the first verse of a song that everyone's heard called Amazing Grace. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace about his own life, and my favorite verse is where he says, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. God took a skeptic of Jesus who was so evil that he was a slave trader, he transformed him. God took a skeptic of Jesus who was so evil that he dragged Christians out of their house and celebrated their public killings and he transformed them. God took a skeptic of Jesus who, while I never did anything violent or aggressive like that, was so turned away in my heart and he transformed me. No matter how skeptical you are, if you'll expose yourself to God's word, if you'll Allow yourself to consider the truth of transformed lives. One day the light will shine down and that new seed of life will grow up. Very interesting in a view of history that John Newton would soon meet a young British lawmaker named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was also very pagan, didn't care about slavery, didn't care um, about doing what's right. William Wilberforce became a Christian. And as William Wilberforce was taught the Bible, he said, we've got to reform our society to be more like Jesus. And he wrote a book called Real Christianity. And if you look it up, Real Christianity is historically, most historians say, the turning point to the end of slavery in the British colonies and then eventually in the United States. William Wilberforce's writings would be adopted by the anti-slavery society, whose evidence I already showed you. And by the time all that social movement of Jesus followers erupted into the Civil War, there was a famous song, Amazing Grace, that was one of the most popular songs in the United States at the same time, written by this same guy. Isn't that amazing to think? God took a slave trader, used him to write the song that most skeptics know about God, and used him to write the song that would be sung during the Civil War as slavery was ended. Um, and then, of course, globally, slavery, open legal slavery, has been ended as a result of what happened in Britain and in the United States. Well, at the end of his life, at age 82, John Newton said this. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. I wanna pray that for you. I wanna pray that for the unbelievers you love in your life today. Father, God, I just thank you that when I was lost, you found me. When I was blind, you opened my eyes so I could see. God, it never would've happened if my parents hadn't exposed me to your word, if they hadn't watered that by showing me a changed life. They unconditionally loved me when I was careless and callous. And they prayed that your light would shine onto me. And I thank you, Lord, that it did. I thank you for how you've transformed me. 
Lord, I thank you for how I'm a radically different person now. I'm so far from perfect still, but I am so much different than I was before. I thank you for the peace that I carry around in me. I thank you for the purpose, the joy, the life, the love that have all resulted from me finally believing that you are my God, you are my creator, you have my best in mind. You can forgive my shame and my guilt. You can give me a new identity and a new life. Father, I pray right now for anyone listening to this who would say the skeptic is me. Lord, I pray that they'd continue to gather here, that they'd actually read your words, Jesus, in the gospels, that they'd consider the evidence of changed lives in this movement and around the world and that your light would shine into their heart, bring about the new life you've brought about in me. God, for those of us who love a skeptic, would you just encourage us today that if you could transform Saul the skeptic into Paul the apostle, if you could transform John Newton from a slave trader to a pastor, preacher, writer of amazing grace, if you could transform us in this room, you can reach the skeptics in our lives. So will you make us faithful this week? to expose them to your word, even if they seem hostile to it, <laughs> to show them our changed lives, unconditional love, even when they test that unconditional love, and to pray that your light would shine on them and would bring about new life in them. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your amazing grace. It's in your name we pray, amen.